All right, my fellow Americans, here we are. You ready for Revival uh, 23? It's going to be the best one ever. How many are first-timers? You've never been to Revival before? Good. Awesome. It's going to be the best. It's a little warm. Get used to that, but that's okay. What's our theme this, this week? Yeah, that's a weird thing. You ask the average person, hey, what are you afraid of? Certainly young people, uh, they like to think they're not afraid of anything. And uh, obviously they're afraid of several things, but uh, that's their goal. I don't, I don't want to be afraid of, of anything. And uh, if that is your goal, that's a dumb goal to have because if you open up your Bible and you think about what God says, he says that's a guarantee that you will live your life as a foolish person. And I say that because Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 makes it very clear. There is one person you ought to fear, and it's the fear of the Lord that this text says is the beginning of knowledge. You just start to be able to think rightly about things if you fear the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you don't want wisdom, right, here's the way that you become someone who is ignorant of things that really matter. And there are a lot of people that are 20, 30, 40, 50, and 80 years old that are very foolish, the Bible would say. They live their lives that way. And some of you in this room will become genuine Christians if you're not already, and you will see that so clearly. You're going to look at people and say, that, that person is living a foolish life. And the key to it are the words and the theme of our week. And that is we better learn to fear the Lord. Because when it comes to wisdom, wisdom is figuring out things like, who am I? Why am I here on earth? What should I do with my life? How should I live? Right? All of those things are, are how people are going about making decisions and they're thinking through how to do that. What they need is wisdom. And uh, the reason it's related to the fear of God is because they're often thinking about those things in light of who God is. Some people don't believe there is a God. Just had a conversation recently with someone, got a sister who's an atheist, and her life is a mess, and partly because she didn't even believe there is a God, which is a growing number of people in our country, uh, not, not a majority, nowhere close to a majority, uh, but even people who do believe in God, and they say, yeah, I believe there is a God. If they have a God they do not fear, right, then they've got the wrong God, because the Bible says you will continue in a foolish and ignorant state of mind if you don't fear the Lord. And if you think about asking the question, who do you think God is? And you ask the average student, what do you think about when you think about God? Who do you think God is? What do you think God is like? They have lots of ideas. They don't see him as someone to be feared. They see him as maybe a, you know, just a big teddy bear who constantly says, I love you. That's the whole point. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Or maybe he's much like a, uh, a very passive grandpa that wants to give his grandkids whatever they want. And uh, it's just, it'd be great to, to get to know God because he's just like an indulgent grandfather. Or certainly they'd say, well, I know he's there when I have a need, like when I'm sick. 
God is a God who wants me to call out to him and ask for help and ask for healing. And God's that kind of God. He's just ready to step in and fix our problems, whatever it might be. If I need a, a job or I need a good uh, education, get to a good school, or I need some problem fixed in my life or in my family, God's there to help. And even if I don't have any big problems, he's always there to cheer me on. Right? He's going to be all about me. He wants to be the cheerleader in my life. And certainly I'll learn that I need resources. I need money. God's the place to go because if I pray to God, God is a God that will give me what I ask because that's what he says. Ask and you'll receive. I know these Bible verses and that's the kind of God that we have. And we're here this week talking about the fear of God. And I know some of you are going to say, should God really be feared? Is that, is that really what we should think when we think about God. Now, if you ask me the question, should God be feared? And there are many people that do ask that question. Uh, I would go to the Bible to answer the question because God wrote a book and he wants you to know what he thinks about all kinds of things, including what you ought to think about him. And if I said, should God be feared? I would open my Bible. I would turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. I would show you this verse that says, fear God. Uh, there's a theological word when there's a question uh, that is posed by so many people and there's such a simple biblical answer. Like, should I fear God? Yes, you should fear God. The theological phrase for that is slam dunk. That's a joke. Uh, but that's a slam dunk verse right there, right? Fear God. And it's all over the Bible. How about Psalm 47 verse 2? For the Lord, the most high. Think about that. Higher than all. He's above all the others. He's the most exalted power and person in the universe, he is to be feared because he is a great king over all the earth, having authority over all things. Now, I can read verses and I can go on and on and we'll look at several this week, but people are going to say, well, fear doesn't really mean fear, does it? I mean, we don't want to be afraid of God. And that's where you should, whether it's a Hebrew dictionary looking at a Hebrew word in the Hebrew Old Testament, or a Greek dictionary looking at the Greek words in the Greek New Testament, or we don't even need to do that because I can guarantee you all of those words, both the words used by the prophets of the Old Testament, those Hebrew words that we translate into the word fear, or the Greek New Testament written by the prophets of the New Testament, the apostles, and they use the word fear in, in the Greek language. Phobos, uh, the idea of, of what that word means, there's no confusion. It's right across from Hebrew and Greek into English. There's no language games being played here. It's the same thing you're going to find in the dictionary if you look it up in an English dictionary. And that's simply this. It's an unpleasant emotion. It's a feeling that doesn't feel quite calm and peace or tranquil. It's caused by the belief Right? Whether it's true or not, sometimes you have fears or phobias that aren't based in fact, but this God who tells us to fear him, of course, is telling us something truthful and factual, but the point is that we're having an unpleasant emotion because of the belief that someone or something is dangerous or it's likely to cause pain or pose a threat. That's what fear means, is that I can't feel completely at ease. I feel uneasy. I feel unsettled. It's an unpleasant emotion. 
And the reality is that God says, you ought to fear me. And every writer of the Bible says that God is highly exalted and to be feared. And we need to recognize that we can't play word games. And there's no help in going back to the old languages of Hebrew or Greek, as you often hear pastors do. And it seems like they're trying to make the Bible say things it's not saying. This English word is as good as Hebrew or Greek to understand what it means to respond to God. And that is you can't feel completely at ease when you think about God, worship God or pray to God. He's not like everyone else. If you were to go out into the river, you're going to go out in the river. It's a little hot. I assume you're going to get into the river. You haven't already. It's a lake. We call it a lake, but it's part of the river. Uh, If you go out into the river and you feel something bump into your knee and it's this thing, uh, I'm assuming you'll feel an unpleasant emotion. Am I right? You should feel an unpleasant emotion because it doesn't matter how nice that crocodile might be. Uh, he could easily open his mouth that'll be, you know, three feet wide and could, uh, and he could, he could bite your, your leg off. Or if you're out there, you get bounced off a tube tomorrow uh, when you're out there and, and you fall into the water and you see a fin come up and it's a shark. There's no sharks in the Colorado River. But if there were, if you didn't feel an unpleasant emotion and an unsettled and uneasy, you would be, you would be dumb. You'd be ignorant. You'd be foolish. Or if you go back to your room tonight and you see one of these crawling toward your bed. Well, that that one got your attention, huh? You've seen enough Shark Week not to be afraid of sharks. Um, You see one of these crawling towards your bed, I'm assuming you're going to feel unsettled. And it doesn't have to be a scary creature that makes us afraid. It could be that you find yourself standing in a precarious place on the edge of a cliff, and really what you're afraid of is the problem of gravity taking your body to the ground at an accelerated speed and uh, hitting the ground and not feeling good. There's a danger. Something is dangerous. Something can cause and pose a threat. Something can cause pain. It can be as simple as that. And the ultimate picture in the Bible and throughout literature in history is probably the most scary thing that's fast, it's agile, it's strong, and it has no fear as it relates to other animals is a lion. And you can be walking uh, from here out to games, you know, if you see one of these coming toward you, you, you should feel uh, fearful, afraid. The Bible says when it speaks of fear, just so that we don't think it's a word that sits there by itself, when the Bible says that God is going to look to someone, and that means he's going to pay attention to someone, have a relationship with someone who is humble and contrite in spirit, and here's a key word, who trembles at my word, trembles. You would tremble, you would fear if you had a big spider crawling toward you, if you had a big shark swimming toward you, if you bumped into a crocodile, right? If you had a lion walking down the path tonight toward you and roaring, uh, the voice of that lion would make you, uh, make you tremble. And, and the Bible speaks of a person who fears the Lord as someone who trembles when, when God has something to say. Of course, we're reading what he has to say in the Bible, and we should tremble at his word. You say, that's Old Testament. How about a New Testament passage? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. You and I as Christians should be working out our salvation. If you happen to become a Christian, you are a Christian. We should live the Christian life with fear, and just so we don't misunderstand it, and trembling. There ought to be a sense of like, uh, this is kind of nerve-wracking to live the Christian life because I'm relating to God, the Most High, the one exalted above all the others. Psalm 119, verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. 
That, that's David. David is a, a friend of God. David is a key servant of God. And yet he says, my, my body trembles of, of, for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Well, Jesus would never say such a thing. Well, Jesus was certainly a nice, uh, nice teacher, wasn't he? Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, see there? He calls his friends. Do not fear. Oh, um, see, exactly. I know there's lots of verses in the Bible. I just have to find them that we're not supposed to fear. And Jesus, who's very friendly and calls his friends, says, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more they can do, right? That, that's when you think about how kind Jesus is and would never teach this. But I will tell you or warn you whom to fear. Oh, I thought I wasn't supposed to fear people. No, fear the one, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now that kind of takes a picture like this and turns it on its head, right? Jesus is supposed to say things so nice that children can gather around him and they're not going to tremble at all at Jesus because they feel so loved by Jesus. Jesus loves you enough to tell you that there's someone that you ought to fear. And it's someone that you ought to fear that's more than a lion that can eat you for dinner tonight and uh, kill you. And after that, there's nothing else he can do to you. The Bible says you ought to fear someone who is uh, above that. Fear him, the one who has authority to cast you into hell. And there's only one person that has authority to cast you into hell. And that's God. These are verses you probably don't memorize if you go to church in Awana, right? They don't teach you these things because most people like to have you think that God should not be feared. The whole week, we're trying to make it clear to you, God is to be feared. And we can't play word games to say, well, that doesn't really mean fear. That just means I close my eyes when I sing worship songs. That's not what fear means. Fear is an unpleasant emotion. It's an unpleasant emotion that says I can never be fully comfortable with God. You will never be comfortable with God if you rightly understand God. Because God will say things like this to you. The living son of God will say, yeah, it's not the criminals you should be afraid of. It's the one who has the authority to not only end your life anytime he wants, but to send you into punishment. It's like David said, I'm afraid of your judgments. That makes me tremble, makes my flesh tremble. That reminds us because he has all authority. The Lord, the most high, has most authority of all. We already quoted this passage, is to be feared a great king over all the earth. Have you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia in this? Good. Good series. C.S. Lewis, professor of... English literature at Oxford University years ago, wrote this series of books. You might have read his most popular uh, book on this, The the Lion, the the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you read this, this is old hat. But in this, this story, which tries to speak of Jesus in a story format, takes the character of Aslan the lion and compares him throughout this story to, to, to Jesus. And, and this is an amazing picture of the key character here, Jesus, who's depicted as a lion, ends up laying down his life to save the children. Now, you know that if you read the books. But the depiction of the king, the good king, being a lion is something that the characters in this book, uh, they don't quite understand. I thought the king would be a man, right? A regular person. Is he safe? I feel quite nervous about meeting a lion, right? And, and, and what's the response from the citizens of Narnia? And that you will be. You will be nervous. He told her, if anyone can appear before the great Aslan, the great king of Narnia, the lion, before the great Aslan without their knees knocking, 
Well, they're either braver than most, and no one's that brave to rightly stand before the king Aslan the lion without being afraid, without trembling, or you're just silly, or you don't quite understand, or you're ignorant, walking in the presence of an authoritative beast, the king of, of the forest, right? And, and you're not afraid. You should be. And so she asks, Lucy does, who's asking the citizen of Narnia, uh, well, then he isn't safe? Lucy nervously responded, safe, he said. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, right? And, and, and there's the key. Of course he isn't safe. God, the triune God is not safe. And, and the problem is with most people, and I don't blame it on you, I blame it on the people that have taught you about God. If you don't fear God, they've taught you that God is safe, that Jesus is safe, that the Holy Spirit is safe, and he's not safe. Uh, but as the resident of Narnia says, he is good. Now, there's a lot of people that we might be afraid of that can kill our bodies, and they kill our bodies, right, for their own selfish purposes, and uh, they're not good. And yet God is good, Jesus is good, the Spirit is good, and the triune God wants to do good in this world, but that does not, that does not mean that he's safe. As a matter of fact, there's the reality of heaven and hell, and that's not something people talk much about. But that is something that's continued throughout the Bible, that God is a God who can cast people into hell, and in fact, he will. Most people that are created will be sent into hell. That's just a fact that has been taught from the beginning of when God has revealed it to us all the way back to the beginning. As a matter of fact, Jesus talked more about people being cast into hell than being sent into heaven. And it should for us be the kind of thing that reminds us when we worship, when we pray, when we share with other people that we're getting to know about God, that we understand that he is a consuming fire. He's a lion. He is a powerful God, a most high God, exalted above all others. So when we do worship him, we ought to offer to God acceptable worship, not unacceptable worship that thinks he's not the God that he is. And you ought to do it with reverence, which is a word, by the way, often translated to fear. And sometimes you've been told, well, that doesn't, you know, fear is not fear. Fear means reverence. Well, we can translate it reverence sometimes, but it's a harder word than just saying, yeah, I kind of see that he's important. You wouldn't stand before a lion. You wouldn't swim with a crocodile. You wouldn't uh, float around with a shark and not have some fear. And, and that's the idea here. He's a God that we fear we worship him with reverence, fearful reverence, godly fear, and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Three things I want to say. That was a really long introduction, but let me say these three things to you. Number one, you need to fear God. Let's start with the basics. He's not just the lion that rules the forest and you're a creature in the forest. He is the creator who is uh, giving you life, and um, that's important. We should recognize that your life and mine is fully dependent on God. And we start with the fact that he made you. He created you. He not only created you, he created everything else, right? There are certain things, obviously, that he's allowed us to make, right? We made these speakers. We made these fans. We made these uh, screens. Yeah, human beings have made things, but God made the things that we can make things out of, and he made the brain work the way that it does, and people's hands to work the way that they do, and us being able to make machines and tools and computers and the things that we make so we can make other things. He wants us to have the experience of making things, but he's the one who made everything 
that makes everything. And he made every person. He made every creature. He continues to make every human being. God is a God who's a God who creates everything. If I cut your hand off, you couldn't even piece it back together, right? You'd have to go to a doctor who, I guarantee you, if we chopped your arm off and you went to the hospital, it wouldn't be, it would never work the way that it works right now. As a matter of fact, they would probably just throw it in the trash and they would put some prosthetic on you and we would move on. Because we, we, can't, even, we can't even piece our bodies back together with all the nerves, all the blood vessels, the bones, we, it, it would be almost impossible. And yet uh, we kind of like to think, well, you know, the God who made us, we're not going to have any fear for that God. We would never tremble at that God. God is a God who's made us all the way down to the DNA that is the instructive protein in your, in your body that, that has all the information about what color your eyes are, how long your hair is, or how your hair grows, whether it's curly or straight. You know all this, right? The DNA. The, the, the information on DNA, the unique information on a, on a DNA strand that you have in the cells of your body, uh, you could fill up the pages of books that would fill a library of a thousand books. If you go to our Compass Bible Institute, you walk in there, you see a thousand books on a few rows of that library. That's just one cell, right? One DNA strand of information. And God has coded all that. We certainly couldn't code that, let alone even put our arm back on if, if it was cut off. We couldn't even get someone else who studied medicine to do that successfully. We, we are very poor at being able to even figure out how we were made. We need to stand back with great respect, even with fear, to say God is a God, a great God who's created everything. He says this about himself, whether we look with a microscope at uh, the, the, the atomic structures of our body or whether we look at the universe through a telescope, God says, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. No one helped me. No one consulted. I didn't have an architect. I, I was the architect and builder of all things. God made everything, the, your eyeball to be able to see me right now, your eardrums to be able to hear me right now, the brain to be able to process the data that's coming into your head. God made all of that. He designed all of that. And in every birth, he's creating that through the structure of what he makes. God is a God who created you. And we should stand back with fear that God is great because he created you and everything else. And the Bible says he sustains you. You would not continue to exist if God did not actively involve himself in your life, in everything about you. Here's what the Bible says about God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. If he didn't by his command, by the way that he wants things to go, if he didn't want it to be, that's the idea of the word. If he didn't say, that's what we're going to do, we're going to have that person live another hour, right? None of it would happen. Nothing in the world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the one putting it and holding it all together. You ever see those guys on, on, on YouTube that uh, balance things in a crazy way? Have you ever seen the, those guys? They're able to put things in, uh, in, in, in such a way that it's just perfectly set so that it, it just it works, their hands go, and, and, and they, they stand back, and everything balances perfectly. It's amazing. Well, all you have to do is start thinking about uh, whether it's our solar system, our galaxy, whether you uh, look outside or inside at, at the structure of our bodies. Uh, everything is so perfectly balanced all the way down to the electrons and protons within the atomic structure of every part of every building block of everything, including your body. 
uh, Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty, for instance, that, that it's impossible for us to be able to predict the speed or the position of protons and electrons within an atom. And, and if this is, uh, you know, if you haven't taken these kinds of uh, basic science classes yet to understand that we have the building blocks of all things to where it shouldn't be that we're able to see it all work to hold together. There's a mystery to all of this. It's not that we're just trying to find God somewhere between the things we can't understand and the things we can understand. It's that we do understand that the function of an atom cannot work in the way that we think things should work because of the unpredictable, uncertain nature of even how it all works. And my point is, God has been saying this from the beginning, that he holds all things together, he keeps everything going, he sustains everything. There's not even a bird, to put it in the words of, of a very uh, friendly Jesus, not a bird falls from a tree, which means it dies. There's not a bird that dies and falls from the tree that happens apart from your father. In other words, the God of the universe, our heavenly father is the one who actually determines how long birds live. And once he's done with the life of that bird, and once he's done with the life of human beings, th then that, that life is done. That's how God functions. He's the God who upholds everything in the universe. He upholds every person in this room. And everybody is alive right now, the Bible tells us, because God is a God who's keeping everything going. He's a God who creates you and everything else. He's the God who sustains you and everything else. And by implication, not only by implication, but by clear statement from God, he's the God who could end you and everything else. And that's the promise of the Bible. One day he will end everything here. But I just want you to think about it. If God is the one keeping all of this going, he is the power source that not only created you, not only created everything that is, but he's the one who continues to flow life into all things living, all things that are. And, and that's all the way down to the inanimate things of trees and rocks. They're all a part of the living structure of the universe. And, and the Bible says, God, God can make it stop. God is a God who starts it. God's a God who sustains it. And God's the God who can end it. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39 says, there is no God besides me. This is God speaking here. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. When I want life to stop, when I want the earth to stop, when I want time to stop, no one can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got a I trick to, to make sure that God doesn't stop it. There's nothing that we can do when God says, it's time for this to go. We're done with this. Because God starts it, God sustains it, and God finishes it anytime he wants. Now you know why David, who's a friend of God, can say, you know what, my flesh trembles at the thought of you, God. And, and your judgments, your decisions, the decisions that you make. I realize how dependent on you that I am. Look at this verse in Isaiah 45, verse, verse 7. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being, that means when things go well, and I create calamity when things go bad. I am the Lord who does all these things. So I guarantee you, if you are not uncomfortable with the thought of the God of the Bible, right? We're not thinking about these kinds of things. That God is a God who creates the good stuff, right? And he's the God who is the God who creates the bad stuff. Not because he's an evil God, but because in God's plan, nothing good or bad can happen apart from God because he's in charge of all things. There would be no Satan without God making it so. 
God is a God who has allowed all that has gone wrong, everything that is darkness, everything that is wrong with this world. There's not a death that takes place that God is not actively a part of, the Bible says, because there's not even a bird that falls from the tree without God's active involvement. Not a single bird falls from a tree dead, right? Apart from your father. I form light, I create darkness, I make well-being, I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things, just like our Jesus' nice verse, right? He's, he's the one who makes alive, he's the one who ends life. Psalm 89, verses 6 and 7, Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a great God to be feared in the counsel of all the holy ones? And, and those would scare you if you could see them, right? The crocodiles and lions of the spiritual realm. In the counsel of all these angelic beings and demonic beings, and awesome above all those who are around him. God is surrounded, the Bible teaches us, by all these angelic beings that are fearful creatures. They would, they would just freak you out if you had any sense of the power of the cherubim or the seraphim or Lucifer or all the things that we learn about in the Bible, the demonic powers. He's surrounded by all that, but he's not in any way compared to them because he's so much greater than them all. A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. You should fear God because God uh, has you as an individual fully dependent on him, just like everything else, created, sustained, and can end it at any time. Secondly, you should fear God because you're accountable to him. You are accountable to the God who creates, sustains, and can end life at any time. And if we think about accountability, you are accountable to the God who is the God who creates, sustains, and can end life anytime he'd like. As a human being, that should get your attention, especially when we add this layer to it. God is a God who gets to make the rules. God makes the rules. Right? In our society today, and this happens, by the way, in every empire, every civilization, that gets to the place of starting to think that it doesn't matter what God has done or what God has said, we're going to do whatever we want. Every society, every empire, every civilization that started to think that way, and you're growing up in a civilization in this Western society that is now doing that like it hasn't done ever in its existence, right? It's like all the other empires that have gotten to the place of doing whatever they want, and they say, we're not accountable to anyone. We get to make our own rules. We get to decide what reality is. We get to say whatever we want. Those are societies that end up being destroyed. And, and so who knows where America will be? Who knows where Europe, Western civilization will be by the time you're my age? Who knows? But it isn't going to be good if we continue on the path of saying we can do and say whatever we want. We're not accountable to anybody but ourselves. If we were to ask who gets to make the rules... Right? You look up, who are the lawmakers? If in California, you'd get a picture like this of the people that sit in Sacramento and get to make the laws. They get to make the rules. They get to, they get to tell societies and communities and cities and counties what they can do in schools, what they can do in assemblies, kind of things that can go on in buildings like this, resorts like this, cities like this. Right? These are the lawmakers. And the Bible says they're not the lawmakers. They don't get to make any laws. As a matter of fact, there's only, according to James chapter 4, verse 12, there's only one lawgiver. And you say, well, they are lawmakers. The only role of the lawmaker is to try to reflect the laws that God has already given us. 
And back in the day, and I say this, at the beginning of America, for instance, this was so clear. If you've ever been to a D.C. tour, go with a Christian group because they'll always point out to you all the verses everywhere. They'll point out to you all the references to like Moses getting the law, the Ten Commandments in this building, verses from Isaiah in that building. And, and secular people who don't care about God, they don't care about the Bible, they're all about being accountable to no one but themselves. They're not going to point those things out. But the America that started 250 years ago was doing well and growing because the lawmakers were trying to reflect the laws of God. That's not happening anymore. Now, I understand there's a lot of complexity to society where you have to think about the details of how do we express new laws for these new situations, say in hospitals or computer labs or, you know, firefighting, whatever it might be, there, there might be some things that you have to legislate, you have to give laws for, but they're only to be extensions of the law that God has given. And God blesses any nation, any civilization, any empire that thinks that way. And you see the rise of those empires. But you see all of the destruction and collapse of empires and societies and nations that say, oh, we're done with all that. We're the rule makers. We don't defer to any God who's revealed himself. No, God gets to make the rules. Not only that, he gets to enforce them. And if we think today about lawgivers, people that make the laws, lawmakers we call them, and, and then there's a whole other branch of government that is supposed to now enforce all of that, supposed to, to give some kind of judgment as to whether or not you did or didn't keep these rules, and then what happens to you if you don't keep the rules. Right? Those are, that's called our judicial branch, legislative, judicial lawmakers, and then we get to judge you if you break the laws, right? The Bible says there's only one lawgiver and judge. I know there are judges, and I know there are lawmakers, but the only real laws that matter are the laws that I've made, and everything else ought to be an extension and an elaboration on that, and any judgment you make ought to be in keeping with the judgments I've given you within my revelation, within the Bible. And so he says really only one, one lawgiver and judge. And in the end, you might have a lot of people making laws that aren't in keeping with God and a lot of judgments that aren't in keeping with God's justice. And the Bible says that's a travesty. And in the end, and by travesty, I mean that is a shame. It's a shame upon a nation and that nation and that sin of disregarding God's laws and God's judgments, God eventually judges those cultures. Mark my words, look back in history and watch what happens to our country and our society because of our disregard for God's laws and the, the judgments that he talks about in Scripture. So there's only one judge, and the judge is far above any courtroom in, in our state, in our county, in our country, or in our world. Why? Because he's not only the lawgiver and judge, he's also the executioner. He's able to save, and he's able to destroy. I'm just quoting now James 4.12. There's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and able to destroy. God gets to make the rules, God gets to enforce them, and he gets to do it based on full knowledge full knowledge of everything that happened and everything you did all the way down to the motives of why you did what you did. Because that's going to happen if you go to court, right? You go to court and it says no parking and you park there, maybe because your wife was about to give birth and a baby was about to pop out of her. And so you had to park there and rush in. Well, they would take that into consideration, right? Because there's a motive there. Well, the God is the God who has full knowledge about the rules right? And he has full knowledge about what you did, and he has full knowledge about your motive as to why you did what you did. 
Look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 35 on the screen. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. He's going to reward the good, and he's going to punish the evil. And the Bible says you just need to know nothing happens apart from God seeing it. And I know you don't think that way, but everything you do, everything you think, everything you say, everything you whisper, everything you do in private, the Bible says it's all right there before God. No person, no creature is hidden from his sight. But everyone is naked, exposed, right, before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God sees everything. Now, you put that together with he made us, he sustains us, he can end our lives whenever, and he gets to make the rules about how we live our lives, and he's going to be able to judge how we did and how we lived our lives, and he gets to see everything that we've ever done and everything that we ever thought and everything that we ever said and everything that we say is the reason for why we did what we did. If that does not give you a little trembling in your body at the fear of the great God that you sang to a little while ago, it ought to. We ought to fear God because he is going to judge. And I just want to look at the passage where he says he's going to judge every person who comes before him who has not been made right. Take a look at this great passage. The great, right, like the governor of California and the small, the guy that's out there just working in the trench uh, on the side of the road that you passed on the bus today. They'll all be standing before the throne and the books will be opened. The Bible says there's books to be opened, right? That's plural, more than one. And another book was opened. So there's a third book here, which is the book of life. So I know that one, that's the book of life. I got two other books here that's, that are spoken of that's recording something. What, what is that? The dead were judged according to what were written in the books, right? The first two books that we talked about. Those two books... We're going to judge people whose names were not in the third book, the book of life. Well, we know they're according to what they had done. Their judgment is according to all that they did, all they said, all they thought, all their motives. So we know some of it is going to record all of that. God has a record of all that. Not that he needs it. Of course, his mind is recording it all. And God's looking at all of that, and he's going to judge it according to what? According to what he said. He's the lawgiver, and he gets to, to judge. So he has given us think this through now, the rules. Here's what you ought to do. And then there's what you actually did. Here's what you ought to think, but here's what you actually thought. Here's what you ought to say, but here's what you actually said. And God brings all the people, all the big wigs that everyone knows about, all the famous people, and then all the normal people and all the little people, and he brings them before his throne because he is the lawgiver and the judge. He's the one who's able to save and the one who's able to destroy and he's going to save those whose names are written in this book of life. The book of deeds, of course, as you know, because you've grown up, some of you in church, and you know that one of the main things that we learn is that no one does what's right. And that's why you think, well, that's why I'm okay, because God knows I'm just like everyone else and no one's perfect. That should not make you not fear God. That should make you fear God even more, that God is a God who judges everything and he's going to have to punish every deed and every sin and everything that we shouldn't have said. So what I want is I want somehow all my deeds to go away. I don't want any of those deeds, any of those things that God sees, all the stuff that he knows in my heart, all the things that I've said, all the things that I've whispered, all the, all the private sins. I don't want any of that. I want it to go away. Instead, I'd like to have my name in that book of life because then I don't have to get punished for my deeds. So that's the whole driving force of what we, why we do what we do 
at Compass Bible Church and at Revival. From the beginning when we started all the way to now, the whole point is to make sure that we do all that we can while you are still at the stage of life that you're at, that you go from having all of those deeds before God who made you, sustained you, and can end your life. He's the lawgiver and the judge, and he knows everything about you. I want somehow to have all of that taken care of, and I want my name in that book of life so somehow I get to skate on that day. How in the world does that happen? Well, that's the whole point of Jesus. That's the whole point of Jesus, right? When it comes to Jesus, that's why he came to earth to die. That's the whole point. He became the one who all of my deeds and your deeds that are sinful were placed on him. And God said, I'm going to take everything that you did that was sinful and wrong. I'm going to put it on him. I'm going to, I'm going to treat him as though he were you. And all your sin is going to be dealt with. And all of my judgment is going to be on him. And everything that you deserve because of what you've done, I'm going to treat him as though he were you so that your name can be put in a book of life so that you don't have to be judged for the things that you've done. Well, then great. I don't have to fear God. No. Number three, you need to fear God because he offers forgiveness to you. This week, you can be completely forgiven. 100%, your deeds can be never brought up at the judgment seat of Christ when it comes to you, the great white throne judgment, being cast into hell. You don't have to be. That's good news. And you think, well, that's why I don't fear. We ought to fear because he offers that deal to you. You ought to to fear God for that. Why? Well, first, you should be fearfully humbled that he would forgive. How in the world does the great judge of the universe look at my sin and say, I'm going to forgive it to where you didn't do it? You ought to say, wow. it's It's like the reality of someone so important taking all of this pain upon himself for just a little pawn, right? The king sacrifices for a pawn. No one would play chess that way. That's not how you win. You don't sacrifice your king for a pawn. But that is the reason that people in the Bible fear the Lord even though they're forgiven. But with you, the psalmist says, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I fear you because I'm forgiven. I fear you and feel uncomfortable talking to you in prayer because you are a God that looked down at me, a little tiny sinner, in, in the speck of a timeline of, you, of what you've created in all the earth, and you've decided to send your son and have him beaten and whipped and crucified so that I could be forgiven. Wow. You should be so fearfully wowed that God, the great God of the universe, would do that. And that's what Aslan, if you've read Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe is all about. How in the world would that, would that lion die, the great king of Narnia, for all of these sinful children? It it doesn't make any sense. It's something that makes you tremble and fear that someone would be so great with so much power and lay all that down to take on the penalty that you deserve. You should be fearfully humbled that he would forgive, and you should be fearfully motivated to get forgiveness if you don't know that you have it. And that's one thing I have no apologies of doing today to you and saying you ought to be afraid if you are not forgiven because you will stand before God and have to be punished for your sin eternally. God is eternally important. His rules are eternally important, and you cannot break them and get a slap on the wrist. And so I'm saying you ought to fear that you might miss this. You might fear because, yeah, I don't know, it's too hot. Is it, I don't like the speaker. I really don't like the people in my small group, my, my team. I don't care what you don't like this week. 
you ought to be afraid that you miss the most important message of all, that we are saying to you, you can be 100% forgiven. Not what I'm saying. I'm saying what the Bible is saying. God has said it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. While the promise of entering his rest, where I don't have to stand there on judgment day and get the penalty of my sin, as it, if it still stands, if you still have opportunity to get that, right? let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We don't want anyone in this room to miss it. And you ought to sit here and say, I should be afraid that I might miss this. That should make me uncomfortable. That should be an uncomfortable and unpleasant emotion. Because I need to make sure that the Christ who died for me it doesn't look at me and I'm thinking, oh, well, I was fine when I came to camp. I don't need anything. I'm good. All this stuff about fearing God, I've learned from my parents to love God because God loves me and everything's good. And love means he's a teddy bear and he's like a grandfather and he just wants to help me through life and get me through life and give me what I want. I don't need to fear him. You ought to fear that you might miss this. Let me dig deep now in some passages. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. Long passage, just words. Look up at the screen. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, this God who's offering a salvation. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Moses came off of a mountain and warned them not to break the rules, and he warned them, and they, they got punished if they didn't keep the rules. Much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Therefore, if we're going to take the warning and trust in Christ, we ought to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is something that God is going to do for us that will last for eternity, forgiveness. And thus we should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There's the context of our passage. For our God is a consuming fire. The whole passage about us seeing God as a God who judges, he makes us, sustains us, and can end our lives at any time, then take our spirit and stand it before him and judge us knowing everything we've ever done. That should be the thing that makes me think, wow, I better not miss this. I better not refuse him. I better not turn my back on him. I better not stop paying attention and worrying more about the person I'm sitting you know, behind or worrying more about the people in the room. You ought to worry about the fact that you could miss this message like so many other foolish and ignorant people in the world that do not listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you ought to say, I don't want to miss it. You've got to be fearfully motivated to get forgiveness. And there's no apologies for that. That's critical. And if you do get it, if you leave this camp and you say, I got it. I know that I am forgiven. I am I'm right with God. I'm a real Christian. right? Then you ought to be fearfully thankful that you're not going to hell. You ought to be fearfully thankful. It ought to be a kind of joy that is so, thank, so deep and profound that you missed out on hell even though you deserve to go there. That it's a fearful thanksgiving. I'm fearfully thankful that I don't go to hell and I don't have to fear going to hell. Now, here's the passage everyone's going to quote to you. Your parents may find out what Pastor Mike preached on and they're going to quote this passage to you and say, see there, you shouldn't fear. Notice the context and listen carefully. 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we have come to know him and to believe, to know rather, and to believe the love that God has for us. Right? which is not just, hey, I love you, I want to give you a bunch of stuff. It's that he looks at sinners who deserve to go to hell. This God, he has this love to redeem us, to send his son to suffer and die as though he were the sinner that you and I are. God is love, and whoever abides in, in, in love abides in God, 
They know what love is because they've embraced the love of God and they stay in that love with God and God abides in him. That person, you, I hope. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There's a day of judgment coming and I can say, I have confidence. Why? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. He was the exception of all the people in the world. Everyone else was sinful. Everyone else was wrong with God. Everyone else deserved punishment. He came as one who was not going to be punished because he was the son of God. Well, you get to be like that now. Everyone else around us, great and small, going to stand before God. They're going to be judged for the deeds that they've done. But you can be the exception to all of that. Christians are always going to be the minority. Forgiven people will always be the minority. And you can be that now that Christ has come and done his work. And there is no fear in love. Fear of what? Fear of that day of judgment. But perfect love casts out fear. I have a love that is perfected by embracing the love that he had for me by Christ coming and dying in my place. I embrace that love. He's embraced me with that love. And therefore, I don't fear the day of judgment. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. That means you don't know about judgment day. You're not sure about judgment day. You should be sure by the time you leave this meeting or at least by the time you leave this camp. And I'd say, don't put it off. You need to think about where you stand with God so that you can say, I don't have fear that I am not written in the Lamb's book of life. I'm going to be in the book of life and I'm not going to have my sins punished. Not because I'm better than the next person. It's because I know that I have embraced the love of God that was demonstrated by Christ dying in our place. That's huge. And you don't have fear of the day of judgment. You have a fearful thanksgiving that you're not fearing hell. That's huge. Because you don't fear going to hell does not mean you do not fear God. Let me prove that to you. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. The point of you as a Christian now is to obey what Christ has said. The things that Christ died for are the things that he said you shouldn't do. Now you should do what he says to do and as obedient children, you shouldn't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Before you became a Christian, you should not live that way anymore. But as he who called you is holy, he's morally pure. He always does what's right. You also be holy in all of your conduct. And if you're forgiven, then you're looking at God as your father and you're praying to God as, fa as father and you're worshiping him as your father and you have a relationship with him and he's not going to send you to hell. But if you call on him as father, the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, we just read about it in Revelation chapter 20, then you ought to conduct yourselves, here's the word, with fear throughout the time of your exile, your time of being on this earth, like Christ, as it said in the previous passage, we just quoted 1 John 4, I'm like Christ in the world, the minority. I'm not going to fit in with everyone else. I ought to know during that exile that I'm going to live a life of fearful thanksgiving that I'm not going to hell, but fear now that I should live rightly, knowing that you were ransomed, not just from, you know, uh, by, by, by a payment of money, I, I got out of this ignorant former enslavement to the passions, the Bible says, because I, I was redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. He was beaten by Roman soldiers. He was put up on a, on a Roman execution rack and bled and died. That's a precious payment for my sin. Like a lamb without blemish. He didn't do anything wrong. No spot. He was morally pure. He died. How should that make me feel about trying to live the Christian life between now and the time I die? It says I had to live with fear. 
throughout my, the time of my exile. That means it's not going to be completely passive and comfortable and everything's going to be just fine. There's going to be some, some what's the word? There's going to be some uh, uncomfortable, some, some unpleasant emotions. That's the definition from, from the dictionary. And so there should be for us. I don't get it. I don't fear hell, but I fear God. Maybe this will clear it up. Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet on the mountain smoking, the people were afraid. So we had this like volcanic mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, he gets the rules, he comes back down, and they're all like, wow, they were afraid. And they trembled. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, hey, we don't want to hear from that God. You speak to us. Just tell us what he said and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. You know, if we have a relationship with God, we're going to die. We don't want to hear from God. Just let you be the kind of the buffer between us and him. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now, you got to unravel what he says there. Do not fear. Well, wait a minute. What's their fear? We don't want a relationship with God because all he wants to do is kill us. He just give us rules we can't keep. We, we don't want it. We don't want, we're afraid. Moses says, do not fear. Just like I'm saying to you, you can leave this camp unafraid that you're, you're not going to go to hell. I don't want you to be afraid of that. I want you to do business with God so that you become a genuine Christian. And you say, I don't, I don't fear going to hell. But just as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, I should have a fear of him that is always before me that I may not sin. I don't want you to fear that you're going to hell. I want you to fear the great God who gave his life where the king was sacrificing for the pawn. And I want to say, I want to live my life very carefully. I want to sing my worship songs with a sense of discomfort that I realize God is great and I'm not, that God sustains me that God made me, that God could end my life at any time. God is completely the king of the universe, and I'm one who needs to learn that God is a God most high above all other gods, greatly to be feared. We're going to talk about the fear of God this week, but it starts with you trying to get to the place where you understand that just because you think you've gotten right with God, because you have trusted him and prayed the right prayer, and you've repented to the best of your ability, that you think, well, then I don't fear God. Then God becomes a teddy bear for me. You will always, if you rightly understand God, live the rest of your Christian life with a sense of the fear of God. It is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowledge. You cannot be a wise person and get through this life without this foundational doctrine of learning to fear God. We got a lot to say about it this week and all of its implications, and we'll get to it night by night throughout the camp. Let's pray. God, help us to be people that understand that the Bible is replete. It's full of passages that remind us that we are to fear you which is a kind of, of, of dreadful, awesome respect that, that moves us into a, even a, a feeling of being not at ease, never at ease, trembling at your word. If you have something to say that we're very, very careful to listen and that we recognize that everything that we have done has been laid on Christ, that's huge. That we're, we're fearfully thankful. And some in this room need to be fearful that they might miss this. God, I know there's so many competing voices, and unfortunately, I know there's lots of excuses running around in the minds of some people listening to me right now that say, ah, I've heard that you're not supposed to be scared into the kingdom. I, I, I don't want to fear the judgment of God. 
please, God, break through to some hearts even now that sit there and think that they should never have any concerns about you because after all, everyone's a sinner, no one's perfect. God, let them realize that that's the whole reason we need to drive our hearts right now above every other priority to say, I need to make sure that I am trusting in Jesus, that I've repented of my sins, that I'm gonna live my life different, not conformed to the world that's like who we used to be. And I pray it would be in the past for many people here, just just continually impassioned with all the the ignorant desires of of what everyone else is following. Help us, God, to be different, self-controlled, saying no to sin, saying yes to righteousness, living a life as though we are people whose names are written in the book of life, who know the great high cost of redemption and forgiveness that were accomplished in Jesus dying and being beaten and spit upon so that we could be forgiven. God, thanks so much for the fact that even right now you sustain our lives. And if anyone is here breathing and listening and understanding this, God, it's, it's you that is causing and allowing and sustaining those lives. Let us worship you with a real sense of fear. Let us fear the Lord and have that great wisdom that you promised to those that do. Help us to learn more this week about the fear of God, to get it rightly dialed in in our thinking in our minds, and may it change our lives for the better. In Jesus' name, amen.